The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Mark chapter 6 this morning, if you want to find your way there. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're in the study of the book of year to go through five chapters. Praise the Lord. So uh, we, are, we are working our way that way. Uh, and just by way of reminder, too, uh, we are skipping. We were in Mark 4, the end of Mark 4 last week, the storm that we, we went through, and we have skipped a chapter. You may recall Dr. Branch uh, preached here back in uh, uh, December when we were on vacation before Christmas. And he preached a whole chapter in one Sunday. Uh, boy, that's a challenge in itself. So uh, we're going to do six verses today. So I think we're getting along pretty far because it took us 12 weeks to go through six verses in the summer. So God is good as you find your way there. Uh, just as a way of reminder, uh, just again, we invite you this evening at 5 o'clock, if you're able, to come uh, to the uh, Potluck Center uh, Time Fellowship and just getting to know one another as we talk through what God might have for us in the future. There's no big plans tonight. We just want to hear from you. We're going to write these down, and uh, we'll continue our study every fourth Sunday at 5 o'clock here uh, from about 5 to 6, maybe 6.15 if our timekeeper is off his timekeeping, so as it goes. Well, it was years ago that uh, you would have been amazed at the story I'm about to tell you because this doesn't happen very often, but years ago... Uh, had you stood on a street corner and watched a funeral procession, a, a particular one, you would have been impressed because you would have been standing there with your head bowed and your hat removed and tears in your eyes, but it wasn't because a president died. It wasn't because a movie star died. In fact, this funeral I'm referring to wasn't someone who was famous, but he had the cabinet, he had officers, members of Congress, dignitaries from Germany, from England, from Japan, from all over the world at his funeral. And there was a tremendous crowd just watching the casket draped in the American old glory flag as it went down the road. And uh, there was an awe, a respect, a somberness. Maybe you've been to a funeral like that. Many of you, I'm not of this generation, but maybe you remember, if you're old enough to uh, remember the assassination of JFK, kind of that feeling, even from a TV set, as you may recall that, or 9-11 for our generation. Well, what was this? Why was he so honored? about him? Why was this man, of all people, be giving a great funeral that most people would never get? In fact, I'm going to give you his name in his moment, but he was never elected to office. He wasn't famous. He didn't invent anything. He was in government service way far away in Tripoli, out in Africa. But he was so loved and revered by the people of his country and from all over the world. And his name may ring a bell. In fact, his name is one that you may have never heard of, or maybe you have. But what was he so loved for? He was so loved for this. And Amy's going to put this up on the screen. Maybe you've heard of this before. He was famous for these four lines. That's it. It's really all he was famous for. Mid pleasures and palaces, though oft I may roam, be ever so humble, there's no place like home. Who is this guy? I've never heard of him either until this last week, praise the Lord. But his name was John Howard Payne. And this statement that he said is so true. There is, in more ways than one, there's no place like home, is there? there? When you're on vacation, there's no place like home. Even the Holiday Inn can't do that for you. The dearest place on earth and the nearest place to heaven, it seems, is home. How many of y'all have that placard at home? To be honest, anyone have that today? 
no one, we're going to buy those for you, all right, if God allows us. So there's no place like home. But for some of us, homecoming is not that great. Maybe you grew up in a home where it was always, you know, just it was arguing or dissension, and it's not the place you want to be. And you try and be like Dorothy and say, you know, you click your heels and say, there's no place like home. And then you end up in a state called Kansas, and boy, that's not good anyway. So uh, it's all, it is what it is. But there's no place like home. As we look at this passage today, that phrase is going to take on new meaning for Jesus because he's headed home to his physical home where he was born. But his homecoming is not like John Howard Payne. In fact, it's quite different. But it's a great reminder to us from John 1.14, a very familiar passage of Scripture. And many of you memorize this, that it says that the word Jesus became flesh. God came down to us and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God values downward mobility and the fact that he came to a place not his home, even though he created it and sustained it, sustains it so that we might have a home someday in heaven. And Gilbert led us in those songs. That is the real stumbling block because this God who came, this is not his home, so to speak, but as a man, 100% man, 100% God, Jesus goes home. But boy, he doesn't get the welcome that you would think. So what does he find? He finds unbelief everywhere. People who don't believe what he has to say. People who don't care what he has to say. Aren't you that guy and the the son of this lady? And and aren't you a carpenter's son? It's the one time in Scripture that Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of people. How can people from his hometown? I mean, today, you know, you grew up in a small town, many of you. If there's a famous person in your town, even if they died like 5,000 years ago, it's like you got a plaque up, right? You don't know what it means, but you know that's where they're from. But they didn't have that reception for Jesus. And so we have to ask the question, why is belief, unbelief especially, so hard to overcome? And the big idea today, if you summary, if you will, is that many people have a head full of knowledge or scripture, but a heart full of unbelief. That's a scary place to be because Jesus is coming back. And even for Jesus, the scene we're going to look at is shocking. To reject the truth is to reject grace. But to receive the truth is to receive grace. And if the greatest honor is to be exposed to truth, then why didn't these people say, yeah, Jesus, welcome home. Here you are. There's no place like home. Because for them, unbelief was something they didn't want to let go of when it came to believing in Jesus. You see, unbelief is practical atheism. It chooses to live as if there's no God or gospel or grace. Unbelief knows the truth but refuses to receive the truth and acts as if there is no truth. I want to look at five things today that we're going to see about unbelief as we look at this very quickly as we go through the verses. I want to see how Jesus, once again, he always does this. Jesus always, uh, uh, if you want to use this, he does the internet terminology. He does a Jesus juke, meaning he kind of dodges out of the way of the defenders. He always gets out of the way and gets straight to the issue. We're going to look at his tactical moves today. Then we want to see why his teaching was not received and why it was tragically unbelief. And then he's going to tell them a timeless proverb that no prophet is ever welcome in their hometown. And then we're going to see the result of this man who came from among their midst, but they wanted nothing to do with. You may recall, if you remember Dr. Branch's sermon, that Jesus has just come from healing a demon-possessed man, healing a woman who gave away all her money to be healed, and the doctors couldn't heal her, but Jesus, with one touch, did. And then the ruler Jairus, who was a famous ruler, whose daughter was sick and dead, who Jesus raised back to life. And with all this triumph, Jesus is walking into his hometown, and there's no place like home. Oh, you better believe it. Will you join me in standing this morning, if you're able, as we do in honor of God's word, to Mark chapter 6, 
verses 1 to 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Be reading out of the English Standard Version as the Pew Bible is. The Bible says this. Jesus came away from raising Jairus' daughter and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man and what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And here's the his, his mouth dropped to the floor because of their unbelief. Wow. Is it things that you could get so hard-hearted that you could be in the place of Jesus' hometown? That's what we're going to look at today. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, we come on a going through verse by verse, hitting a passage of scripture that's not one that's easy to preach. We came from the highs last week, Father, of, of, of you calming the storm and your sovereignty and how that applied to us. It's so easy to relate to in so many ways, even though we weren't there, Father, but the, but the timeless truths. But Father, we thank you that those same timeless truths by the application of your spirit are here in the word today. Father, if there be any unbelief in us, whether that be someone without Christ, they need to come to know Jesus, to repent and believe the gospel then would your spirit draw them to that truth? Father, if there's unbelief in our hearts here, even though we know the truth about you, whether that is trusting you for a circumstance or believing that, Father, we are saved and assured of that or whatever, Father, that you are who you say you are. And because of that, thank you for your word. Thank you for this dear conversation. Thank you for the ability, opportunity to be here this morning. We pray this all to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you very much. Well, as we come to this time, I, I, I want to alert you to verse 1 as we start out here about the tactical move of Jesus. As I said, this is my generation speak here, but it's kind of like when you play the game Madden. You know, Madden football, you hit R1 or L1, and you kind of juke out of the way, get out of the way of the defender. That's kind of what Jesus is going to do here in verse 1. So you see there as he starts out, he says in verse 1, as we just go chump by says, he went away from there. From there refers to the, 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 the place of Capernaum. This is where Jesus just came from, and he's been there for almost a year, but it's time to set out. It's time to get going again. And Jesus had rested his head. He'd regathered his strength, and some of his greatest miracles had happened. Remember that story? The demon wanted to go with him. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're going to go back to your people and share what has been happening to you. And he healed that lady who gave away all her savings, all her money to find a cure. And all she did was believe on Christ and she was healed. And then the man, Jairus, whose daughter was raised. These great miracles. But Jesus is operating on a divine schedule. He's ready, but the time is to move on. That's the tactical move here. And in Matthew 11, Jesus speaks of this area called Capernaum. And he says this, he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been remained until this day. 
But I tell you, speaking of Capernaum, the area he's, he, he's leaving, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Good morning, Jesus. Have you had your coffee? Wow. Jesus shakes off the dust, and he moves his hands. He, the sun has set on their opportunity to come to Christ. Jesus never returns back to Capernaum, as we see in chapter 5 where he's spending. He never preaches there again. The door slams shut. What an opportunity to remind us. If you're visiting today, we thank you so much. Or if you're here today and you're regular, that the opportunity God has each of us, the day could pass, that you would say, oh, I'll come to Jesus someday. Oh, I'll get there. But you may never recover from your sickness. I have a cold. I've had for like a week and a half. Man, it seems like it never goes away. I didn't know that much stuff could come out of your nose. It just keeps coming. You just, you never know. You really never know. My wife was telling me of a doctor that she worked with in, in the hospital that, not closely, but he was a marathon runner, 53 years old, in the shape of his life, just died of a heart attack one time running. You probably say, well, that's his fault for running. Well, maybe. But he, his day passed before what we would say is his time. And Christian, if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, may I encourage you to talk with us about what it means to know Jesus. He died for you. He loves you. But Christian... The life of a Christian is a perpetual come-to-Jesus meeting. That's what it is. For sure, there was a moment of glorious come-to-Jesus when you came to Christ. You remember when that was as an adult or a kid. But the whole scripture makes it clear that the life of a Christian is one of repentance. And what Jesus is doing, he's moving from one area to the next, but he is reminding us here that this area he left wanted nothing to do with him. And now he's headed to an area that's going to come to a place where they're going to say the exact same thing. Christian, you need him today as much as you needed him the first day. You need him every moment of every day. And the more precious he becomes to us, the more we watch our shame, our fears, our confusion melt away. So Jesus leaves Capernaum, this area that's doomed to failure now, and he goes on, and it says there in verse 1, he came into his hometown. You ever go back to your hometown after you graduated high school? Y'all know what I'm talking about, some of y'all, and you think, by golly, how did I survive this place? Or how did they survive me, maybe? I don't know. But Joseph and Mary, of course, lived in this town called Nazareth. It's about 20 miles east of Jerusalem. Joseph and Mary lived there after, you may recall the story, the Christmas story, where they left in the middle of the night and they went to Egypt. You remember that, some of you. And Jesus grew up here. And often he's called Jesus of Nazareth. His, his hometown literally means the fatherland, not in some... Uh, uh, World War II kind of Germany way, but it literally means the fatherland. So he comes home, comes home, and there's no place like home. His mother's there, his brothers are there, his family's there. He was a carpenter there. People he probably made things for are there. They're probably still resting in the things he made for them. But it's not the same reception. But you notice as well that he doesn't come alone. It says in verse 1 that his disciples followed him, his disciples, because that's what disciples do. They follow their master. And he returns to the place where their brothers and sisters are living. Friends, I think it's a great reminder to us that as we follow Christ, there will be times where God puts you in places and situations where in your past you would say, boy, I'd never be there, but he puts you there because that's where he wants you to be. God is obviously fully in control. He's fully God, fully man. Jesus is. He knows where he's going. So what he's expecting is exactly what he knows is going to happen. But friends, it's a reminder there's no place that you can reach better than that of your own home. Some of you are more, to be honest, some of us are more afraid, I speak from experience, to speak to our own family than we are to go out and knock on a door because those people don't know our past. These people know Jesus' past, but he's not afraid to go talk with them. 
May we pray for wisdom as we go forward, that we are not afraid wherever he leads us, whether that's to old friends, not to, not to run with them again necessarily, but you know, you know, go talk to this person. You say, no, Lord, I can't talk to that person. They know all this about me. Well, they also need to know that God has forgiven all your sin and it's found only in Jesus Christ. May we have that wisdom to do so. But notice, secondly, he, we see his teaching ministry. So he gets back to his hometown. He went away. His disciples follow him. And as is the custom, he goes there on a Sunday. Look back at verse 2 here, or on a Friday to Saturday. He says, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Who's he? That's Jesus. And he began to teach. So Jesus always had that in mind. It was always about the teaching. It was always about sharing God's truth. And you notice that it says, when the Sabbath came. Why is that put in there? Well, remember, Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. He has not sinned like you or me. He's come to a place where he's fulfilling all that God had for him, and he is following what Exodus 28 says. It says, keep the Sabbath holy. And he was under obligation and necessity, as was any Jew, to live under God's law. And Jesus did that perfectly. And he ends up in a synagogue. You, you, a synagogue is like a church in a sense. Ten males, Jewish males, 13 or above, had to form a, uh, a synagogue, or, or they'd sing and preach and read. But why is this important to us? Because as Christians, we need to know that Jesus didn't stop teaching when it was appropriate. Jesus kept teaching faithfully and faithfully and faithfully and faithfully, even though he knew what was going to come. Let's take an aside here, as any good Bible study will, and ask that question. Are we under the Sabbath today? And all the seminary students are getting ready for the boxing gloves to come out, because this is still debated among many Christians. Look, we don't take the Jewish Sabbath as it was in those days. We don't have to do nothing on our day. We believe as Baptists in the, in the Baptist faith and message, which is our statement of faith, it says that you can do on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Sunday, what your conscience under the Lord Jesus allows you to do. For some of you, that is you cannot wait for Super Bowl Sunday. Some of you are ready, you're ready to fly up to Minnesota in 20 feet of snow and just bust into that building because you're ready for the Super Bowl. Other alls next week, you're going to be like, oh my goodness, the Super Bowl, what? I'm just going to get my and come home. Friends, it's up to your Lord. It's whatever your conscience dictates on the Lord's day. But the question becomes, what is most beneficial? And friends, in no way did it relieve us or relieve these people from the gathering of the church. No matter how you take the Lord's day, may I remind you what is on the screen. Two great reasons to come to church. You are needy, but more importantly, God is worthy. What Jesus reminds us here is he doesn't just know what's going to happen and say, whoa, it's going to get hairy in here. I'm getting out of here. He still continues to do what God has him to do. Sometimes I'm shocked at how little priority people who claim to be Christians put on coming to the church on Lord's, the Lord's Day, Sunday. I mean, to, not to be legalistic, but, but, but why don't we spend more time around God's people? And I'm speaking to myself. You know what I'm saying? Because sometimes we feel like Jesus may have felt, humanly speaking, well, there's this person there, and there's this conversation there, and boy, I just, you know, they don't have this put up, or they don't have that put up, or you know, whatever it is, I can't go because of this, that, or the other, and they're just really superficial excuses that don't amount to much. But Jesus reminds us here that even though he, even though he sovereignly and his omni, omniscient knows what's going to happen, there's no place on earth he'd rather be than among God's people. Is that your heartbeat? 
Remember what the, the psalmist said, he'd rather, he'd, rather spend, he'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord and spend one day with the Lord than a thousand elsewhere. You remember that? Are you sick of politics? I know there's those laws, you can't speak about those things. Go to church and worship the unelected, unimpeachable king of glory. That'll get you going for the week. We don't go to church because of guilt. We go to church because God has made us and given us grace. God has given us grace. And notice what he does here as he gets But he came to teach. And these rabbis would travel around. They teach and teach and teach and teach. And he stood up there like Aaron did today. He'd take a scroll. He'd get out. He'd read it. And he'd explain it. And then after that, it all goes downhill from there. Because you see what the people said. They became, and they heard him, they were what? Astonished. Who is this guy? The greatest need we have is to know and do God's word. He's not focused on... What is... Is it dealing with interpersonal conflict in the church? Is it, is it because I'm afraid they're going to ask me for money? Is it because I don't feel okay? Check your heart. Even when things are hairy, Jesus kept faithfully going and going and going and going. But here's what happens next. Look down at the end of verse 2 as we go to number 3, the tragic unbelief. Notice this, guys. Very, very important. So they're astonished. He's teaching amazing things. But the tragic unbelief comes in. He had handled the word with power, with purity, with, with all the things you should do. His teaching moved people. And you hear what they said. Many people heard him. This wasn't just a small gathering over here. Many people, let's come home. Let's go hear what this weird guy has to say. This, this crazy guy that grew up with us, could he really be that guy? And it says many people heard him. He was known him. I mentioned a minute ago, if Jesus is a carpenter, there's still people probably on the rocking chairs. Did they have rocking chairs back then? I don't know. But Jesus' own hands had probably made the very things that these people have, as did his father Joseph. But they are astonished. They're amazed. They are literally, as the word means, to be stricken out of their minds. Or another way, to flatten out like you would pound something, like you're pounding tin down. Or uh, when I make a pancake, because it's so that's why you microwave and buy them, by the way. You know, you got to pound that thing into submission to make it actually edible. As it is. But they heard the word, they explained. I never have, and I'm not that old, but I've never gone to a high school reunion. Some of you say, be like, yeah, it's been a while, but you remember high school reunions, and you see that person like, whoa, who are you? And you have to get out your yearbook. You're not trying to be weird, but you get out your yearbook. You go, oh, i got to go to the bathroom, and you're looking through your yearbook. You're trying to figure out who that person is. That's kind of, in a sense, how this was with Jesus. They were absolutely mesmerized. And they were blown away. And this happened at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And then they start asking these questions. Are you ready? They start going to Jesus with questions. And the first question they say is, where did this man? Don't read over that passively. This is a scorn. 
This is criticism. Where did this man learn these things? Where did he learn his teaching? He's not educated. We know who he is. We grew up with Jesus. And what is this wisdom given to him? Where did he come up with all this? He didn't sit under a rabbi. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't go to college. Just a rabbi. We know him, and he would never be able to do this on his own. What sermon did he plagiarize from the internet? Did he copy and paste? And then they go on. They say, and such miracles, they couldn't deny the miracles. Guys, there's no way to deny the miracles. Jesus had just cast out a demon-possessed man. He had just raised a girl from the dead. He had just uh, you know, healed an 18, uh, a lady with 18 years' worth of trouble. But miracles were to show that he was the Messiah. So miracles are either from God or they're not. And they're keeping him at arm's length. And then they get even more personal. Look at verse 3. So they speak generally about his brain. It's about him. And, oh, is this not the carpenter? Literally, is this not the technician? You ever call those customer service lines and you're like, can I speak to your boss? And they're like, well, I'm the customer service technician rep number 2.0. And I have lots of training. I'm ready to take you on. And you think, I don't understand what I'm saying here. In Mark 13, 55, he's known as the son of a carpenter. We know Joseph, his father, his earthly father, was the son of a carpenter, and he probably was there for many years. And they're dumbfounded. How can he speak like this? They're saying he should stick with his wood and not the word. Get out of here. And then it gets even more personal, guys. Don't let, don't, I mean, you think there's some name calling on today's? This, it gets personal. Look at this. Not only is he a carpenter, but he's a son of Mary. Now, this is 2,000 years ago, guys. You don't just speak to someone by their mother's name. You speak to them by their father's name. Do you see what's happening here? You ever know someone who, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but someone who maybe you know, had a, a baby out of wedlock in high school and, and names were called of them? You, you know what I mean? You, you understand the context? Someone who does something that society would say no and they're just shunned, they're, for, they're forgotten, especially if you're in a small town that just exacerbates. It kind of lays there innocent. He's the son of Mary. But it shows that Joseph isn't alive. Joseph is dead by this point. We know that. But they're showing he was born wrong. You remember the story, right? So, so Mary, how did, how, did, how did you get pregnant? The Holy Spirit came upon me. Oh, really? How, what? Mary, you're crazy. Guys, she was still considered to be uh, that girl. You don't understand what I'm saying? She was still that girl. And now they attack Jesus and say, you're the son of Mary, that girl. That just makes you that God. You're the illegitimate son of born out of wedlock. And they're attacking the messenger to deny the message. And then they get even more personal. They attack mom. Then they get to the brothers. And all of his immediate family were known. They were living there. And they say the brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Not Judas, the, the guy who denied Jesus. But there's no sense to list them except they were known to them. Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary had other kids. James, the half-brother of Jesus, would go on to be the leader of the church of Jerusalem and write the book of James. Joseph, we know nothing about him at all. Judas, otherwise known as Jude. I love that book. It's my favorite book. The second to last book of the Bible. 25 verses. That's him. Simon, we know nothing about him. But they're saying, Jesus, you can't be teaching this stuff. We know who your mom is. We know she's that girl. And yeah, we went to school with these guys, and they're not much better than her, better than you or them. They're just like us. What gives you the right, Jesus? 
And then he says, aren't his sisters here with us? We don't know their names. And then after all this ridicule, note what the Bible says. Jesus, you're either for Jesus or against Jesus. Look at what it says there at the end of verse 3, guys. And they took what? Offense at him. Wow. They took offense at him. Jesus spoke with authority. And because of this, not because of his family, but what he had to say. And Amy will put this up on the screen. But friends, here's the application point. If we open God's word and do not hear his voice, the problem is not with his speaking, but with our listening. Every time you sing him, you contribute to God's work, you hear his word expounded, you are experiencing God's grace on a given Sunday. That's why Jeremiah 20, 20, 29, it says, O land, O land, hear the word of the Lord. The way to feel God's heartbeat is to start listening to him. And these people shut their ears. They said, we want nothing to do with it. We're done. We're all set in. We're done. And as a pastor, I'd rather hear you say, thank, thank you for giving God's word faithfully than a great sermon. Because Jesus, anyone can give a great sermon, but is it faithful to God's word? And Jesus was. And he was a cause of offense to them. Christian, if you're going to live for Jesus, you will have family react like this or worse. They will ridicule you. They will misunderstand you. They will say, you're with that little cult called Tower of You Baptist You will get those words. Maybe you already have. The fact that you're sitting here on a Sunday morning is countercultural. Do you realize that? You are being countercultural because you pulled out and backed out of your driveway and went to a church this morning. Why? Because you're here to worship the living Jesus. And by the way, we had staff meeting this morning, and we don't know how we're going to do this, but April Fool's Day, April 1st, is Easter this year. There's no joke about it. Jesus is risen. He's risen indeed. We know that, right? It's all good. But the fact that you're here this morning shows that you're okay to some degree with being an offense to someone else for Jesus. Not that you said anything to him, but the fact that you're here speaks volumes about what you believe. Because these people wanted nothing to do with that Jesus. Notice, fourthly, the timeless proverb. And this is where Jesus starts. They start going at him, but Jesus goes right back to them. Notice verse 4. He says, and they took offense at him in verse 4, and Jesus said, Except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is referring to himself as a prophet. We know Jesus as a prophet, priest, and king. He was sent from God and by God. He is God. He speaks, and it's God's word. He doesn't have to say, thus saith the Lord. He is the Lord. What he says is true. And out of his own hometown comes that great thing that I know you said before. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt, doesn't it? Those who have the greatest exposure to Christ are those who refuse to be uh, refused in the most adamant. You may remember a couple chapters ago, you, uh, before Christmas, we got into this in November. Jesus' family came up to him, and, and they tried to talk with him. Remember they said to him, you know, Jesus, your mom and your, your brothers and your sisters are here. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, those who do the will of God are my brother, my mother, and my sister. They thought he was crazy. It literally said they thought he was out of his mind. And there is a great danger You'll see it on the screen. There's great danger in familiarity because it will rob you of your awe of God that will be quickly replaced by the awe of you. Man, look how many Bible verses I own. Man, look how many sermons I listened to this week. Man, look how many people I witnessed to for Jesus. Great. Praise the Lord for those things. But it's not about you. It's all about Him. Church, we can do that as well. We can pad our stats. We can 
You know, just to give you some insight, and again, the seminary guys will love this debate. Get your boxing gloves out. There's a big debate now. We're on Facebook Live over here. We're live on the internet. We've reached, we literally are reaching across the world, not by, you know, God does that, but the debate becomes, do you count people who are online watchers as church attendees, or do you not? Well, our church is going to count the people who show up in the pew, okay? Just so you know. But you get into all this stuff, and you get into all these debates and all these things, and as a church, we can make ourselves look better than we are, and that's not a knock on us, but it's not about us. It's all about Him. Friends, we see, we come broken, we come sinful, we come needy, but there's a Savior who meets all those needs at the cross. Familiarity can make us miss out on the depths of beauty, what's wrong, things of God that'll, that'll cause us to lose our all. Look, we can get so automatic, so autopilot with our church, with our relationship with Christ, with our relationship with each other, intentional about He had come back to his hometown. They knew him, and therefore they judged him. They knew him, and therefore they would not listen to him. Their unbelief pervaded everything of every place. Is this not a moment like ours for our church? Such a great exposure to the truth, and could in some be guilty of having unbelieving hearts of the very things that Christ is teaching us today? Could we be familiar we get apathetic? We the warmness and a grace and, a, and an energy to see him. Royally it up, but they come back before us as a church and say, up, will you forgive me? Will this Because Jesus it sure was. to God, but may our church be such that we say, Lord, no matter what's happened, no matter what interpersonal, whatever junk is going on, may we not be as Jesus' people were and say, look, you want to get back in here? Then you got to walk through this, 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 this. May our grace be big, may it point to the cross, and may we be more likely to I want verse 5, we'll end with this. So Jesus is not welcome to his own hometown, and then this is where it gets even more down to earth, because this is exactly what happened. And he could do no mighty work there, because, and we'll get there, he could do no mighty work there, except there he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty miracle there. Friend, it shocked Jesus, and it should shock the living daylights out of us. He had no diminishing of his power. Jesus is still perfectly God. Jesus doesn't, you know, he's, Jesus isn't like a chameleon. He doesn't get power when people believe in him and less power when people do. He's not a people pleaser. He doesn't try to work the crowds. Jesus is fully God, fully man, all times, yesterday, today, and forever. But his unbelief, this unbelief isn't greater than his power. When there is no belief in an area, when there's a country, there's an area that doesn't know Jesus, it doesn't mean that Satan has won the day. Look, Satan is on a leash, and it's, the leash is called the sovereignty of God. Satan can do nothing more than God allows him to do. Every square inch of this earth is a place where Jesus said, that is mine, and that's what he did. Because he's Jesus, he's God. But because of the unbelief in their hearts, Jesus chooses not to do miracles among them. 
He had to have faith in their hearts. And, and, and these people, he told them before that your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Because there was such resistance to the not faith in Despite having heard the clearest presentation of the gospel, they chose irrational and insane insanity rather than Except you notice a small group of people. Every word counts. So the big works couldn't be done except that he laid his hands on a few sick people. Don't you love that? If you were in Sunday school this morning, you met a guy named Crispus. In that I, I joked with our Sunday school class, that sounds like uh, a lunch after church. It was very Crispus, you know, something like that. But a, uh, he was a ruler in Acts 18 who came to know Christ. When, when Paul was preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel, all the Jews were saying, oh, you know, get out of here. And, and Paul says, look, get, here it is. I'm leaving. I'm gone. The blood's on your own heads. But the ruler of the synagogue came to know Jesus. You think about Elijah. Uh, I couldn't sleep at one in the morning, so I turned on the continuous radio Bible and picked it up at First Kings eighteen or First Kings seven. Says to one of the the, the young men who's a, a servant in Ahab's court, and he talks with him, and he says, "Do you not know that God has saved seven thousand people?" And the young man kept saying, there's none like us. We're the only ones left. And he said, but there's others over here you didn't know about. There was a small group that was so overawed by the truth of the day that they had a ring of authenticity. They repented and believed in Jesus performed miracles in their hearts. Friends, we may not be any big church. We may not be the biggest church. I mentioned this in the prayer, but it's so true. But if we have a group of people committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, as these small group of people were, we can radically change the world. Do you believe that? I'm not talking about changing the government, although God may see that fit. I'm talking about people supernaturally coming to know Jesus Christ. You are the greatest missionary we could ever send. Why? Because you are right where God has you to be. You are the greatest speaker of truth that God could ever send you to be. Why? Because God's put you in the family he has. He's put you in the job he has. He's put you in the neighborhood he has. He's put you... Uh, you know, for some of you, he's put you at the same workout time, at the same workout place every day. How's the New Year's resolution going? Hopefully well. God's put you where he is because it's there. But I want you to see what happened. He marveled. Guys, he marveled. I don't know what your scripture says here, verse 6, but it says he marveled because of their unbelief. It's amazing. He marveled. He was astonished. And I want you to know that there are 30 times in the Bible where, where, where people are either astonished with Jesus or, or vice versa. But 27 of those 30 times, people are astonished at Jesus in the New Testament. Only three of the 30 times is Jesus astonished at people. He's astonished about a ruler who believed in him in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 8 and Luke 7. But this is the only time in all the scripture that we know of that's recorded where Jesus is astonished at their unbelief. Only time that the unbelief of a group of people bewildered him. How in the world could this have happened in my hometown? They had the greatest exposure. They had the greatest access. And they should have fallen on them. And their overexposure to Jesus kept them from accepting his words. What does this mean? It is possible for you as we close, for you to be a born-again Christian 
in a Christian home, given Christian mother or father, given Christian grandparents to be brought to a church to hear the word of God again and again and again, and you be just like these people before. It's a hard truth to accept. Many of us who've been around churches for a while, we all know of pastor's kids, don't we, that grew up differently than their parents, probably raised you understand what I'm saying? We know those people. We think, how in the world? They grew up in the church. And, and we look at the parents and say, you know, it's their fault that they wouldn't have brought them to church all the time and, you know, force-fed them, brainwashed them, then they wouldn't have turned out like that. Oh, contraire, my friend. People make real decisions all the time. You're here today, and your child has gone wayward, but you've been faithful to teach the truth. Praise God, you've been faithful to teach the truth. It doesn't mean you stop loving them. It doesn't mean you stop teaching them or sharing the gospel with them. But friends, at some point, we are individuals and we make choices. And those choices have consequences. And these people, their choice was not not believe in Jesus, and that was a closed door for many of them for eternity at that time. God loves, as Amy will put up, to find ironic ways to turn even our unbelief into an opportunity for his faithfulness. How often have we been like these people and we said, God... <laughs> You can't do that today. God, I see all these great miracles in the Bible. I see all this great work of God, the word of God in creation. You can't do that today. God, the politics aren't right. The, the churches aren't right. The people aren't right. The pastor's definitely not right. But we know all these things. God, you can't do that today. And then God just drops a big miracle bombshell in your way. And you think, by golly, why didn't I believe him all along? We all have stories like that. Friends, don't think that just because, and, and Aaron, Aaron and I went, went knocking on doors last week, sliding around the ice. He's a lot more nimble than I am, and Aaron's like skating around on these ice things last Tuesday morning. And, you know, Aaron, we, we didn't really have many open doors last week, not many. But who knows? Maybe this week as we knock on a door in Gracemore, someone opens that door, and they, as Aaron would say, a green light. They're, they're open to the gospel. But your heart would say, well, last week we didn't have anything. It's kind of like going fishing, you know? Well, the fishing report says the fish aren't good, and by you find your special spot, and you don't tell anyone where it's at because you want to catch all the fish there yourself. You understand? Friends, you never know what God can do. These people didn't believe, but there was a small group of people who held the faith, who believed God at his word, even when things didn't look favorable, even when things looked contrary to everything that happened, God was faithful to bless them. I wonder if our familiarity has bred a certain lukewarmness even within our church at Tower View. If that is the case, may God awaken us from our sleep, as Romans 13 talks about. Let's not let Jesus look into our hearts and see the lack of faith as he did here, but for him to reinvigorate us, to see that it's not based upon the size of the budget, it's not based upon the size of the people, it's based on the size of the people who believe in a God who is faithful, even when people don't think God can work. That's our God. Unbelief separates people from the goodness of God, but may we always be eager to respond with the word of God. May the truth always be provocative. May it always ignite us. May it always excite us to love people where they are, but share Jesus where they are as well. Guys, thank you for being a faithful congregation to that end. So many of you are doing such, it's been very encouraging this last week, despite a lot of hardship and a lot of families, to see God's grace working through. And thank you for your faithfulness. This will be true. We pray with me as we close out.